Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast of the Anime's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. Happy Halloween, Andrew. Happy Halloween. Um, what, what's, um, what's, the, what's, um, what's Dracula's favorite drink? Bulmers. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, happy... How do you kill a circus, Andrew? You go straight for the juggler. Happy, um, happy Halloween, uh, Darren. We're, of course, sponsored this week by Bulmers. Uh, no, we're not. Um... <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. Um, you were bobbing yes. for apples, um, I guess. That's a Halloween thing. Sorry, we're not being thematic at all. <laughs> <laughs> Consistent. Consistency is, is, a, is an aspiration at this point, I think. But yes, we are doing... Uh, we are coming to the second... we're off the rails. rails. We are completely off the rails. And coming at you for the second half of our kind of Halloween coverage, uh, we are talking this week about Ridley Scott's Alien from 1979. Uh, one of the greatest movies of all time, according to IMDb, one of the greatest horror movies ever made. And for that discussion, we have two fantastic guests. The wonderful Joey Kyo. How are you, Joey? Hi! I'm back. And the sensation... I'm back. And the sensational Bernice Murphy. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. What a fantastic and eventful week we have all had between these two recordings. I don't think there's enough time to get in and ask like how it was for everybody. Halloween episode two, the return of Joey and Bernice. <laughs> Terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> To, to be to be fair, I think that's I think that's Halloween episode four. Um, <laughs> Halloween episode two is Joey and Bernice's revenge, um, oh. but that's okay because they're setting up you know, Dream Warriors. Better, uh, but um, but yes, okay. So we're talking about Alien this week, one of the great uh, science fiction movies, one of the great horror movies, uh, one of the most loved movies out there at the moment. So to kick us all off and to get the discussion started, Alien or Aliens, Joey? Ooh. Oh, God, I don't know. I think I love them both equally. Um, oh, I think Alien. I think Alien is scarier. So I think Alien. But that will change, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Bernice, what about yourself? Do you have a pre- like, is Alien, before we jump into any of the standard 250 kind of format stuff, is Alien the best movie featuring a xenomorph? Yes. But, uh, and I love it. I love it, you know, I love it like a family member. But you know what? I actually enjoy Aliens more. Although I also enjoy Alien. Uh, but I, yeah, in terms of sheer cinematic excitement, um, I'll pick Aliens if I'm looking for crack. But in terms of a uh, slightly better film, they're both amazing. Uh, I would say Alien is a masterpiece. Not the first person to point that out, but it's just it's superb on every level. I mean, like it is worth noting that Alien is one of the three uh, Ridley Scott movies uh, on the list. It's currently number 52, the 52nd best movie of all time, which ironically means the IMDb thinks it's just slightly worse than Ridley Scott's Gladiator, which is currently the 44th best movie of all time. Uh, but that's a debate that we'll be having at some later point. But Joey, Bernice, do you remember the first time that you saw Alien? What about me? Like- <laughs> <laughs> we 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 literally did an episode we did an aliens. episode on aliens and i think i was fairly clear that, <laughs> yeah. that that alien is the superior movie and i still but feel that for way. men yeah it's, the men it's... want to be heard <laughs> we will not be silenced anymore <laughs> thank you joey for being an <laughs> ally <laughs> Uh, <laughs> exactly yeah 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 i mean like we're we we do our we do our best by having at least two men every week um <laughs> on, on the show 
Um, Somewhere between 50% and 100% of the guests of the kind of like old podcast is male. We try to make sure that we get representation, at least representative, you know? Um, Yeah. But but yeah, thank you for that derailing there, Andrew. But it's I suspect that's going to be a nice inroad into. No, talking it's, about it's art um, versus kind of like commerce. I mean, I don't like um, James Cameron really, but like it, it's this 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 is this is an incredible movie, and it, it's more it's um, it 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 has more of the kind of like. Um, like the just the 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 characters are fantastic and yeah sorry 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 um the man has spoken <laughs> i beg your pardon it's not really a fair comparison because they're so different yeah yeah that's fair you know, like i think alien is a straight horror film alien is kind of an action horror so yeah sorry and very consciously chose <laughs> very consciously chosen to be that way like Cameron has talked about how when he was making Aliens his argument was and it's an argument I think a lot of people making sequels would do well to understand is what makes the original beloved is not something you were ever going to beat it on its own terms so the best thing to do is to take the concept and take it in a slightly different direction and try to compete on your own terms and do something that is kind of different and distinct and I think that's probably why the first two Alien movies are the two that are generally regarded as the good ones or the best of the set and why their legacy are perhaps less divisive than the ones that follow. I say as a big Alien Three fan, Andrew. Sorry, I feel like I'm. Yeah, no, 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 no. I, 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 I like all of them actually. Like they, they, they. I think they all have. And I suppose in into that conversation, then you start talking about like Prometheus and Covenant. I haven't seen Covenant. I've seen Prometheus, but um, I think as far as franchises go, I think Alien has. Um, the it's I I I don't I don't think its troughs are as deep, and I think it's 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 um its peaks are maybe maybe higher. But you could you could argue that I guess I don't know. This sounds like a man who has never seen Alien versus Predator Requiem. Well, yeah, did that 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 is that's a crossover. Um, and and <laughs> and 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 doesn't count. And, it's out of continuity. And who's the first Alien versus Predator? That's supposed to be not nearly as bad as um, uh, uh, Requiem. Um, yeah. Still not right, great um, though. What? Sorry. It's still not great though. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's, it's only great yeah. in hindsight through retrospect. Yeah. Like it looks like a masterpiece when you watch them back to back, and you're like, "Was I too harsh on Alien versus Predator?" But I'd have to go back and rewatch Alien versus Predator to make that judgment, and I'm not going to do that. I've, um, I feel like there, there, there's probably more like Jason movies that 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 are like just just not good at all, right? I do think I do think there's a difference between the Alien. Fra- okay, this is probably something to throw to to Bernice and and Joey, but I think there's yeah. Sorry, of- sorry. No, you're 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 quite right. There's a lot more money involved. Yes, in and there are a lot more artisanal as well in that, like. We retroactively recognize, like, the work of, say, Cameron uh, in making Halloween, or we retroactively recognize the work of Craven in making Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, but those movies, when they came out, were seen as being cheap and cheerful and disposable and mass-produced. You mean Carpenter for Halloween? I think with the alien... Carpenter for Halloween. I said... Yeah, sorry. Did I say Carpenter for Halloween? I said Craven for Nightmare on Elm Street. I just, uh, so, sorry, I thought you said Cameron. <laughs> oh, apologies. Sorry. Sorry. Um, but yeah, like... I think the Alien franchise kind of stands apart of the big horror franchises because it's more artisanal. It's more auteur-driven to a certain extent, where even you get to Resurrection and you come back to Ridley Scott's Prometheus and Covenant. Um, but actually, there's there's a question to throw to, to Bernice there, actually, in terms of like Alien 
in terms of those grand horror franchises that Andrew mentioned, the Jason movies, the Freddy movies, the other properties that have had a similar arc where they've been rebooted, they've had prequels, they've had crossovers. What is it about? Does Alien stand apart from them? Is Alien a better example of them? Does Alien exist in the same sphere? I mean, I think one thing that's interesting about Alien and the direction that it took subsequently is that um, the first film is incredibly lean uh, and efficient and backstories at an absolute minimum. And as often happens whenever a franchise is created, as generally happens whenever a franchise created, little kernels of information from the original are then expanded outwards. And I think, sadly, with, although I, there are, I, I mean, for instance, I remember really enjoying Prometheus and finding it very interesting the first time I saw it. I even quite liked the most recent one. I've forgotten the name of it. Is it Covenant? Covenant. Yeah, I, I thought there were some really great moments in Covenant. But um, none of, I think they all kind of miss in a way by, by they're so dense, they're quite bloated. They're very pretentious. They are really, like the more recent Ridley Scott takes on this material have been incredibly pretentious and very self-consciously so in a way that I think does the material no favours. Whereas, I mean, the interesting thing about Alien is it always it always had this kind of, um, I, I'm not going to use the term elevated horror, but um, because I, it's a load of bollocks, frankly, uh, and I, I give this rant every year. It's just it's um, it's 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 nonsense. There's always been a quality horror and an intelligent horror, and it's profoundly insulting to suggest that there's a different type of horror for intellectuals uh, who understand things. But if Alien had, if that term had existed in 19, what was it, 70? Uh, 79. 79. If that term existed in 79, somebody would have been writing an incredibly pretentious article for Slate or whatever about, this is a new kind of elevated horror. Um, so I think I've lost track of what I was trying to say there, but I do think uh, there's a there's a, a, a central intelligence in Alien that's actually really interesting. And even in the latter iterations of the franchise that aren't for, on a lot of levels necessarily all that, um, perhaps as good. <laughs> um, there's always something interesting there, and they're always trying to say something. And I would say that that does differentiate it from a lot of other franchises. I think Alien has a sense. The Alien franchise has a sense of um, of intellectual ambition that doesn't always come off. I think more often than not, doesn't come off, um, and philosophical intent that maybe has done more harm to it than good. But it's trying. There's a great ambition there. And I think there's something amazing about a, a filmmaker like Scott. He keeps returning to this material. I find that fascinating um, and, and really a, a very interesting insight into clearly what a central place this has in his own filmography. Yeah, I mean, I kind of now that Andrew's thrown the idea out and now I know it's something that Andrew enjoys, I kind of almost want to do the Alien movies, despite the fact that they are not all on the 250, because they're like, there's a lot to talk about, even in the ones that I do not like. But Joey, what about like, before we jump into talking about the movie itself, because Andrew's kind of thrown the gates open, the Alien franchise, like how, like as somebody, like as an expert in horror cinema, how do you position it in the Pantheon? Is it one of the great horror franchises? Is it like the others, like not the elevated horror, but is there a difference there between it and, and kind of its contemporaries or I think the thing to remember with Alien, because this came up very recently, it was a big deal on horror Twitter because some journalist, you know, decided that it wasn't horror because it was set in space and it set off this big, big discussion. Listeners cannot see Bernice's face, um, yeah. but... It's a joke. I mean, I, I got to say, I watched it. I've seen this a million times. I watched it again and I actually screamed at one point. It, it's that good. It gets It really gets under your skin. As for where it stands, I mean, I agree with Bernice. It is different because, I mean, well, because it's sci-fi, first of all. But, I mean, if you take something like Halloween, yeah, further down the line, it is kind of just people trying to make a quick book and just trying to profit off the name. Um, obviously, slashers are very different as well because there's only so much you can do. 
Me personally, I only really like the first two. I think they just completely lost the run of themselves. I thought like the the most recent two where they really fell down was that they just the reliance on CG as well. One of the great things about Alien is that it's so tactile. The suits are amazing. You know, the models are amazing. The sets are amazing. And I think they've kind of lost a lot of that in service of, as Bernice said, trying to be more philosophical, trying to kind of be more deep about it. Whereas really what makes Alien so fantastic, as many, many people have pointed out over the years, is it's essentially a haunted house movie in space. That's that's what it is at its core. And that's what makes it so brilliant. And if they had it just stuck to that, I mean, I suppose you could argue there's not a whole lot you can do. I mean, with with some ingenuity, maybe you could, but... And two, you know, certainly widens the scope without losing any of that inherent tactility. But that is what makes it so great is that it's self-contained and it's simple. It is relatively simple. They don't say, hey, this is why we're here and this is what we're doing and this is how I know you. And, and that is what makes it so urgent. So while I think there probably is more to mine here, I'm not sure it has the same kind of staying power as something like Halloween, which, as we've seen recently, was rebooted in a very, very interesting way for a modern audience while keeping what made Halloween so special while keeping that intact. Um, and I mean, like you mentioned Halloween and we've mentioned Halloween a couple of times already. It's worth noting, like this is in some parts, the twin of Halloween. Halloween was released the previous year, 1978. Um, and obviously this was derived from a script written by Dan O'Bannon, who had been the writer um, on Dark Star, the first movie made by Carpenter. So you have this idea that they choose like the path of American horror in the late 70s branched. And you've got Carpenter doing Halloween and you've got uh, Bannon doing O'Bannon doing Alien. And they're kind of tied together. And I like what we're talking about is kind of interesting. And this is probably something I should say for later on. But like up front, it's fascinating that like we've had this conversation about Alien. And the immediate thing that we latched on to is that it is so atmospheric. It is so practical. It is so lean. It is so efficient. It is so invested in what it's doing and doing it well. It's really interesting to go back and read the reviews. And it's a, it's a recurring motif whenever we do the Halloween episode. We go back and we look at the reviews of the scary movie that we're talking about. And it's like those reviews have not necessarily aged well. Um, where like you have this immediate reaction to Alien, where critics are reacting as if this is some sort of monstrous cacophony of noise. Um, like the haunted house description that Joey mentioned, which I think was a quote from um, Gene Siskel. Um, you have like Vincent Canby uh, comparing it to like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Star Wars, 2001 Space Odyssey, and saying that the movie doesn't compare. Um, it's an old fashioned scare movie about something that is not only implacably evil, but prone to jumping out at you when the movie hopes you least expect it. There was once a time when this sort of thing was set in an old dark house on a moor in a thunderstorm. Being trendy, Mr. Scott and his associates have set it in space. You have Pauline Kale, uh, who famously cranky New Yorker film critic, um, who in like 1980 singled out Alien as basically the root of everything that was wrong with contemporary American cinema. It would be very convincing to say that there's no hope for movies, that audiences have been so corrupted by television and have become so jaded that all they want are noisy thrills and dumb jokes and images that move along in an undemanding way so they can sit and react at the simplest motor level. There's plenty of evidence, such as the success of Alien. This was a haunted house with gorilla pictures set in outer space. It reached out, grabbed you, and squeezed your stomach. It was more gripping than entertaining, but a lot of people didn't mind. They thought it was terrific because at least they'd felt something. They'd been brutalized. And you have, like, Derek Malcolm in The Guardian. Sorry, I, this is the last one, I promise. Huh. Um, like, some people call it 
a cruel, heartless, essentially exploitative opus. Something to gibber at. There's not enough writing for proper characterization, not enough plot development for the mind as well as the senses to bite on. And it's kind of interesting that you see people going at the time, this is a cinema of kind of excess. It's too much. It's too... And, you know, we kind of look at it now and like Bernice's first description of it was, it's a very lean movie, at least compared to what we've come to expect from kind of big movies. I find that fascinating. Well, it's it's good that Polly and Kale didn't live to see the f-ing Conjuring universe. You know what I mean? Because that's and, and and all of its subsidiaries. Because that's well, that's all that is is just boo, just do yeah. do 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 boo. I mean, and quiet, Alien, quiet, I mean, quiet, cop. Yeah, exactly. Quiet, <laughs> quiet, and it's and it's funny because Alien doesn't even do that. It doesn't even give you a little bit of score to let you know a scare is coming. So it's yeah, it's. Considering where we are now, particularly like with mainstream blockbuster horror, that's it seems very quaint that they thought that was too jump scary. <laughs> I mean, I think there's only two jump scares in the whole thing: one in the tunnel and one in the that big room, whatever the place, what that place is. It's a weird kind of a review as well, because it's like, well, if you want a movie to make you feel things, then I guess yeah. like, <laughs> if, this that's, is a movie. if that's what you're yeah. after, well, then yeah. I can't help you. We should yeah. mention, by the way, Kale's Kale's article was titled "Why Are Movies So Bad." Um, that was that was the headline. Which I, but she was kind of against a lot of things. If you weren't Citizen Kane, you were automatically like du- deducted five right. marks, weren't you, with Pauline Kale? And, and if you were Citizen Kane and you were Orson Welles, you were still docked by Pauline Kale, um, vindicated <laughs> by Mank, apparently of all things. Um, but yes, okay. So do we remember the first time that we saw Alien? Because I imagine most of us have seen it before this podcast. Um, so, Joey, do you remember the first time that you saw Alien? What your first experience was watching? I feel like I watched it with my brother, who is younger than me, but was definitely way more of a film buff than I was growing up. I feel like we watched it in his room on VHS, which is a, a, the way I saw a lot of movies like Evil Dead, Rocky Horror. I definitely saw both of those on like an old VHS in his room. So I feel like I saw it that way. And I remember just being completely terrified. I'm someone who finds the idea of space inherently terrifying anyway. So just the idea that they're up there is enough for me. I don't even need an alien, but the fact that there is an alien, it just chills my blood completely. And it's great because it still has the the same effect on me now. No, it's, it's such a good point about space being scary. It's, 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 it's something that Star Wars really kind of negates because of how like their ships yes. are made of like um like toilet rolls and sellotape and they just kind of fire them up there and nobody ever gets like you know sucked out suffocated yeah. yeah 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 um but it is a, it is a scary kind of uh, just a, um concept of of like a, the unknown and of there being this kind of um hostile void as, as, as well. Well, I mean, the, the, the tagline for the movie was in space, no one can hear you scream, which is a tagline that is very clever, but also points out that there is no air in space. And as Joey said, kind of makes space scary again, which is interesting. Because um, I mean, like, again, this is two years after the original Star Wars. And I think like Andrew points out like the their ships being made of like toilet roll and sellotape. Um, the, this the aesthetic of Alien is quite similar to the aesthetic of Star Wars. It's the used future. Everything is rusty. Everything is mank. Everything is kind of like mm. not really working. But it seems it does have a tension that, as Andrew points out, Star Wars doesn't have because magical space wizards and ain't a kids, which I find interesting. 
Um, but Bernice, do you remember the first time you saw Alien? Actually, funny enough, I don't. I remember very distinctly seeing Aliens and that blowing my mind. Like Joey, I saw it on VHS with my little brother, uh, which is how oh. we uh, <laughs> films in the 1980s. Somebody at school had recorded it off the telly. But I do remember um, very vividly, I'm fairly certain that before I saw Alien itself, I saw Spaceballs, which is a very good parody of the chestburster scene where the alien comes out and does a little, like, uh, I think he does on the Ritz. Um, yeah. So I probably was kind of disappointed the first time I saw Alien that the creature didn't, um, you know, perform a song and dance number. It, I, I'm for, what I do remember is the, uh, the only time I've seen it on the big screen which was about 10 years ago at Horathon. So shout out to Horathon, which is on this weekend. Um, and uh, it was, you know, there's always films that you've, you've only ever seen on, on TV uh, and you've always thought, I'd love to see that as it's meant to be seen. It changed the way I saw the film because I realised that even just watching it again there before we met uh, this week, um, there's no comparison. Um, seeing this this film, is, it's one of those films like The Shining that is absolutely meant to be seen on the big screen. Uh, the set design, I, I mean, I, I, I wasn't even paying attention to the dialogue. It, it's beautiful. It is so beautiful. It's stu- so stunningly well designed. The, particularly the alien ship that they go into, the size, the vastness of it, the alienness of it, if I might put it like that, the defamiliarization. It just blew me away. And I'd always had kind of like, oh yeah, of course, it's a very well made film. Yes, the set design's great, but Seeing it particularly um, detailed like that on a big screen, it it just gave me a whole it gave me a whole new appreciation for the film actually. So I would say if anyone's out there and it, it gets revived from time to time, if you ever get the chance to see it, it's one of those films that even if you've seen it a dozen times, you will come out of it feeling like you've seen it for the first time on the big screen because it's so superbly composed, every single shot. And the set in particular is just, I mean, H.R. Geiger's designs are iconic anyway, but... Oh, it so lands on the big screen. So that's that's what's the, the viewing that really, really um, has stuck with me. I mean, like it, you mentioned the kind of like the sequence where they go into the, the alien ship. And that was one of the big arguments that like Scott had with the studio. Because very famously, like Fox initially looked at it and said, this is a B-movie script, B-movie budget, $4.5 million. Scott came back and he said, we can't do it for less than 13. And they settled on 8.5. And one of the big things was the sequence in that alien wreck. And the studio were like, look, that's one scene. You're going to build an entire set for that. You're going to build an entire creature for that that's never going to do anything. You're going to build a giant corpse that is never going to actually pay off in any way in the film. How can you justify doing this? You need to cut this scene. And Scott apparently fought tooth and nail and threatened to like walk off the movie if they cut it or if they cut the budget for it. And I think that kind of speaks to like the attention to detail and the care and the craft because it's really a movie you kind of live in like for how sparse it is it feels like everything in it is tangible and tactile and and physical and real uh, in a point and like not to sound all nostalgic shake my fist at the sky kind of way but as joey pointed out with a lot of modern movies it's more like no i know that's inside a computer i know that that you can't touch that if you tried and it um, forces you to be more creative, like having those kind of restrictions. It, 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 like I feel, I feel like some of the kind of use. You mean like Manos, Manos, <laughs> at the hands of fate, like that sort of. Exactly. Yeah. Huh. No. The the um, like 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 the way, for example, um, kind of CCTV is used when you get like kind of like coming up to that. I f- I feel. I feel like that's maybe kind of like a trick where where you're able to kind of, um, you know, 
disguise the cost effectiveness of what you're doing. Kind exactly. Of yeah. But yeah. Andrew, what about yourself? Do you remember the first time you saw it? I don't Alien? think I do. I, I'm, I'm, I must have been in my kind of early teens or something like that. Um, uh, but I'm not certain precisely. I, I would almost 100% have seen this with my brother um, probably in um, uh, when we were supposed to be in bed. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, and weren't meant to be watching horror movies. Yeah, because you're not a horror movie fan. You're on record as not being a big fan of horror movies. No, but I love sci-fi. You know, like and and, okay, and so kinda... yeah, yeah. And this this is, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not a I'm not a big um, uh, horror fan. I guess no, I don't really seek them out or anything like that. Um, but a lot of great movies are horror. You know. I like that. You make it sound almost incidental. It's like, yeah, they just happen to be horror. So it's <laughs> happened to cross over into this genre I personally don't like. Like, like, I'll, I'll, um, because it's because a lot, um, like, there are a lot of horror movies that come out and, um, and aren't very good. And, um, you, you just kind of don't really, it, it, it can sometimes be more difficult to, to, to notice which ones are good and which ones aren't. If, um, and so you, you know, let time kind of sort it out in the same way that like, yeah, it, yeah, exactly. Like in the same way that mo- any of the horror movies that have made the list tend to be films that last movies like the thing, for example, movies like the exorcist alien, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Whereas like, if I, I, I think if I saw kind of like, Oh, the thing is out. Um, oh, but, but people hated the thing. Oh, yeah. And no, anybody, anybody who saw The Thing was out did not go and see The Thing when it was released in 1982, possibly the best year for movies. Yeah, so I probably wouldn't have gone no. to see it. And if you had, you probably would have hated it at the time. But yeah, no, um, I, I, I get that. The idea of kind of letting it settle and letting it rise. And as we mentioned, Alien came out to not exactly thrilling. This is a classic of the genre reviews. It kind of settled into that status over time. Um, for myself... I can't remember the first time I saw Alien. Like 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 Alien, Aliens and Alien 3. Like I probably saw them when I was far too young and it was horribly inappropriate and therefore they've I've kind of always have seen Alien, Aliens and Alien 3. Um which is an interesting experience um as these things go. All right then before we jump into the spoilers on three questions to get us started. Joey, do you think Alien is one of the best 250 movies ever made? Oh, 100% it is. And it's it's also a really, really great argument for practical effects, which I really appreciate. I mean, how many, this is what, 30 years later? Is it 40 years later? 40 years later? It's, well, yes, yeah. 40, 42. And we're, Darren does maths in pandemic. I, I, just, like, I can't do maths at all. That's why I'm a writer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, here we are 40 years later. We're still talking about it. It still has just as much power. You know, there there were movies released two years ago, a year ago, six months ago that I've already forgotten. So absolutely I mean, it is. Well, you mentioned like the importance of practical effects. Like a couple of years ago, there was a big thing where a local school in the States put on a stage presentation of Alien. Oh, yeah. Which is entirely like that's entirely based on the fact that it is reproducible. That like what Scott did in practical effects is something that you can do or emulate within the confines of a high school auditorium, which is kind of amazing. It's kind of a celebration of that, I I would argue. Uh, But Bernice, what about yourself? Do you think that this is one of the 250 best movies ever made? Uh, Absolutely. Um, I mean, not only is it probably the, the greatest science fiction horror film ever made, 
Um, I'm sure we'll come to this, but in terms of um, a leap forward in terms of the representation of women in film and the kinds of roles that women <clears throat> women could play in film or were allowed to play, more importantly, on screen, this film is absolutely um, uh, pivotal um, for obvious reasons because of the character of Ripley. I also, later on, I will have a, a brief, if I, if I permitted, a brief appreciation of Veronica Cartwright's work in science fiction horror films. Uh, I, I want to have a little, because she's very oh, good I, as well. I've already set aside 20 minutes for that. Absolutely. It's, it's grand. Uh, I mean, I figured, like, there, there are seven core cast members. I figure if we take 20 minutes each, that will... Definitely, there's, there's. I mean, it, it, it is, it, it's one of the best casts, I think, ever assembled in a, in, a, in a horror film. I mean, come on. Every person in it is absolutely brilliant, and they're each a legend in their own right kind of I mean maybe Tom Skerritt a little bit that's no diss on Tom Skerritt but like he started with Sigourney Weaver and Cartwright and you know uh, Harry Dean Stanton and Yafit Koto he's you know he's in good company so that's what yeah. I was thinking like I, I was th- I was watching this today and I was thinking like Sigourney Weaver is the only person in this cast who will have Alien as the top line of her obituary um like and that's how good this cast is that like this is one of the things they did and like you're right tom scarrett is probably for me the like the person who i most associate with alien as compared to like yafet koto being in like live and let die and all the other stuff yafet koto did almost being captain picard harry dean stanton and his story career veronica cartwright all that sort of john hurt and everything else that he did as well ian home and the yeah yeah um, like I, I remember talking to somebody they're like I, I forgot that Ian Holm was in this that's so how stacked I. this cast is yeah so did I yeah absolutely like, like, Tom Skerritt is the guy where I'm like oh yeah he's the guy from Alien and even then he's the guy my parents would be like oh no he did lots of stuff in the 70s lots <laughs> of memorable movies about cops I'm guessing probably he has a Sheriff. fine mustache yeah yeah <laughs> um but yeah, um, and Andrew, what about yourself? Do you think Alien is one of the best 250 movies ever made? Absolutely, yes, yeah. And uh, like we've talked about the cast, but it's just a very well-made movie. And it, it's, um, as, as, as some people have said already, um, it's, it, it's, it's so atmospheric and clever and really frightening. Yeah. Like properly, I was so um, upset <laughs> You know, watching this and in a, in a, it's it's just such an impact. Like, and you, you, I think we've even mentioned it like already, and people know about it, and it's been parodied. But there, the that scene for me, like I, I thought like there's no way it's going to um, catch you again, catch me like that. But we talk about that with other movies as well, where where like up. Will always catch you, no matter like yeah. how much you, <laughs> how cynical or how prepared you are. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No matter how kind of like uh, used to it, steal you yourself. You are. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And it would be up there as well. This is, I mean, one of the interesting arguments I read about Alien, and I think it's a very valid one, is that it, it's basically the thesis statement for that Roger Ebert argument that it's not what a film's about, it's how it's about it. In that, like, the actual plot of Alien is very straightforward. Um, like, it's been pointed out that it's the plot of a 1930s haunted house movie, where a bunch of characters end up going somewhere they shouldn't and encountering something they shouldn't. And it's combined with a 1950s science fiction B-movie like Forbidden Planet, with this well, kind of, like, atmospheric space stuff. But it's just so the, well made. But the, the the thing is that it's true to no fault of of of, of theirs. Like they they they're not wandering into this kind of that it's um this is um 
uh, like well, Robocop about um, capitalism. It's, it, yeah, exactly. It's about companies kind of um, and their kind of um, lack of attention to the value of humanity. Or their willful disregard of it, perhaps, is probably a more frank way of putting it. It yeah, is yeah. kind of their fault, though, because he puts his head in that thing. <laughs> and, and they don't listen to Ripley. Ripley says... Yeah, Ripley's him. like, don't go down there. Well, I mean, here. and again, this this gets to the stuff that I think we're going to talk about Bernie Ripley, alluded Ripley to there. would have prevented COVID if Ripley had been in charge of quarantine for every single country. There wouldn't have been a pandemic. She's the original quarantine queen because she was <laughs> yeah. like, no, you know, quarantine is right. We need quarantine. We need to quarantine. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, we need to follow the regs. Did they listen? No, they did not. Um, and again, that's that's perhaps something we'll get into when we talk about what the movie's about. Yeah, um, r- but yeah. I- uh, sorry. <laughs> go, go ahead. I beg your pardon. No. No, you sound like you were about to say something. Oh, I was about to do something really dumb. As uh, <laughs> I'll do it later, or I could just do it now, and you can edit it out. Now I'm terrified. Okay, we'll, we'll do. Are you worried because you're on a Zoom call with a video component now? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Andrew has turned the video off. We should assure um, listeners, which I, I think is making everybody more uncomfortable. No, just to save bandwidth. Okay, all right. I'm just drinking whiskey. Oh, okay, Grant. That's fine. Um, that's fine. Why would that be a problem? It won't. Uh, All right, then. Um, And for myself, yes, absolutely. Uh, I think it deserves to be on there. It's a massively, hugely influential film. Um, It is a key cornerstone in terms of genre. Uh, There are not enough horror movies on the list already. It is stunningly well made. Um, The point that Bernice made about it being a huge step forward in terms of the representation of women in genre filmmaking and arguably in cinema in general. Um, And yeah, just it is a, a superb piece of film. This is Ridley Scott's second theatrical release which is stunning to me like i love the Julius is a very well made film about two men in napoleonic france who really want to kill each other but there's very little in it that says oh no this this man is going to make this um and it's 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 amazing um so yes absolutely and then joey would this be on your own personal 250 your own 250 favorite movies ever yeah definitely i actually forgot how much i liked it until i watched it the other night and i was like whoa this is, yeah, it's just, it's an incredible film, an incredible achievement. Yeah. And Bernice? Oh, yeah, uh, top 50 for me, definitely. Maybe top 25. Wow. Yeah. So in terms of, it's like, so does it top your sci-fi, but not your horror? Well, I, I mean, think I think it's a hybrid film. I think it's both sci-fi and horror, like Event Horizon. There's a great tradition, like sci-fi and horror have been mixed together for, uh, we wouldn't say centuries, but for a long time. Well, Frankenstein, yeah, arguably, I mean, right? Uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne was doing like proto science fiction slash horror with Rappuccini's daughter in like the mid 18th century. Sorry, put on my American or mid 19th century. Sorry. So um, there are two genres that often mix very well together. And I think this is I mean, this is the best ever example of that. Um, Let's let's face it. Not to diss Nathaniel Hawthorne. um, You know, he's a great writer, but. You know, he didn't create an alien, so I will hold that against him. Not to be unfair to either the modern Prometheus or the really modern Prometheus, but yes, I think think that's fair. Yeah, Uh, Frankenstein, sorry, that's an an even better, a much better example (laughs) that people uh, will have heard of, yeah. But but Andrew, what about yourself? Like, is this one of your own personal 250 favourite films? Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. And and like like Bernice... um, I, I, I would 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 put it in the upper half, like might 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 be in my top twenty five too. It's great. It's terrific. There's nothing yeah. like I can't think of anything bad about this movie, um, and and I I I just loved watching it. 
and um i've i've i i love i love owning it as well um and just being able to go back to it when you you just know it's going to be amazing yeah um and like i i would agree with that as well um i've seen this movie countless times it's certainly in my 250 favorite movies ever alongside aliens i'm not going to pick one or two of them i'm going to do the joey answer on that and say depends what mood i'm in by the way like loads of people love love aliens Aliens. like there's nothing wrong with aliens aliens. i just don't like it (laughs) i'm I'm not making some argument that it's um well sorry i probably did earlier (laughs) all right then and then final question before we jump into the spore zone if listeners have not seen alien would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it it is widely available because it is a fox film which means it is technically a disney film I think it might even be on Disney Plus now. Um, I couldn't I'm... find it on Disney Plus. Although so, sometimes things are difficult to find. I could see some of the alien stuff, but I couldn't see it on Disney Plus. Okay. Um, bought it on YouTube. Because apparently yep, Disney are now figuring out how to ma- how to market it. They're doing a new TV show from the guy who did Fargo and uh, Legion. Noah Hawley is doing a an alien TV show with Ridley Scott, which will be interesting. They should sell those little plush um, eggs like they did with... I know it wasn't Disney, but they, they there was these fantastic toys when uh, Jurassic Park came out, where it was like an egg... But it it had like Velcro on it, and you would reverse it, and it was a dinosaur. You could probably do that with an alien, <laughs> and it would be cute. Well, they do have they do have plush xenomorphs. They have like little teddy bear xenomorphs that you can like for kids and stuff. It's yeah, I have cute. one. Yeah, oh, amazing. <laughs> Um, and Bernice, what about yourself? Do you recommend that listeners pause the podcast and stream Alien? Absolutely. And what I would say is watch it if you can on the biggest screen that you possibly can. Turn out all the lights, close the curtains, try and create an atmosphere where you can pretend you're in a cinema. Um, uh, because this is not a film to be watched while you're kind of scrolling. No, it's not a Manos Hand of Fate. Uh, <laughs> you should absolutely devote all of your attention to this film and it will amply reward it. It's just it holds up so well. And and you're it's you know it's a film that you will that will stay with you in all the best possible ways I think. And I mean, you mentioned there like watching it. The sound design on this thing is absolutely incredible. Um, it is stunning to just listen to on a good surround sound system as well, uh, which I think when I saw it in the cinema was my big takeaway. Um, and Andrew, what about yourself? Would you recommend that listeners pause the podcast and watch Alien? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and, and um, yeah, it, it's um, it's not like Manos. <laughs> <laughs> hands of faith manos hands of faith is good if if um if you've been meaning to text people like you can totally do that well like you'll want to do anything but watch the movie this this is the complete opposite if um, twitter has like cracked who the zodiac is and you really want to dig into it like manos is a good movie to have on the background that happened to me while i was watching manos i looked at twitter and it said zodiac killer identified and i said i need i need to leave man so sorry that actually <laughs> reflects yeah, the, the other day for me when I watched you it a having, week ago of course you were having, yeah you were having a very late 60s afternoon apparently um, <laughs> but uh, yeah and, and for myself absolutely uh, wholeheartedly recommend it um, if again we'll probably talk about the spoiler zone the Ridley Scott director's cut which is fine watch the theatrical cut the theatrical cut is the one to watch um, and again on yeah, the screen as possible it's such a weird thing like he he says like oh that's just like marketing like yeah. you know, he says like the because the idea of a director's cut implies 
that the vision of the director was somehow like um, uh, interfered uh, with by the studio, mangled. I mean, again, like Scott's Scott's third movie on the 250 is Blade Runner, where you make a much stronger argument for a director. 100 percent. And I've I've seen both. And the the the, um, like the the theatrical version is not that great. The 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 voiceover is just um, just bad. yeah, no, it, it's uh, that, that's certainly an argument for it. But he, 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 he's it, it's generally longer a director's cut as well. I think the director's cut for this comes in a little shorter. One minute, it shaves it was, a whole minute off. Yeah, that he just kind of did it as a kind of like an artistic exercise to, um, but that not that it's like, um, like if you if you're. It's kind of like film buffs will go for a director's cut, but if they're an actual film buff, they won't be tricked by it because they'll know that kind of like Ridley Scott um, disagrees with the whole kind of... um, Yeah, well, the issue with the director's cut of Alien is quite literally that they were releasing the Alien quadrilogy on Blu-ray in 2000. Three-ish. Exactly. Uh, by the way, that's an excellent collection. If you're a media fan, if you can get a hold of the Blu-ray discs for it, it is an exemplary piece of physical media. It's very similar to the Matrix set, uh, which is on Blu-ray as well. is phenomenal. But they realized that they had uh, director's cuts or alternate cuts of the other three movies. So they had um, they had James Cameron's special edition of Aliens. They had the um, what's it called, the assembly cut of Alien Three, and they had the director's cut of Alien Resurrection, which adds I think twenty seconds of gore. And they were like, yeah, we need we need a fourth one to complete this. Um, are you okay, Bernice? Is everything okay? Or... I just... <laughs> <laughs> oh no, they've taken Bernice first. <laughs> no, I, I just absolutely rubbed menthol into my eye. So... <laughs> oh, can you, oh my can God. You pretend, pretend. I was putting it on my neck. Pretend this Zoom neck, which you get when you have to do lots of meetings on Zoom. So, and it's my good eye, so I can't really see much. Of it. So anyway, continue. I'll be fine. I should bravely soldier. <laughs> I thought you like desperately wanted to say something because your hand was up. I was like, oh, I was like, she actual, must have like, like, ti- tiger, ba- tiger balm in my eye. So it's fine. It's working. It's bad. And, and because you watch Manos, it's only the second worst thing that's gone into your eye in the past. This is the most painful thing now that's happened to me all week since I watched Manos Hands of Fate. So, um, yeah, continue on. Nothing here to see. <laughs> I wish I didn't have a camera on right now. So. <laughs> With that in mind, we will segue neatly into the spoiler zone. (laughs) Spoiler zone! (laughs) All right. Because we asked Joey last week, I want to ask Bernice, but I want to give Bernice a moment to just get... Thank you, I appreciate it. Get your zen. (laughs) At least this didn't happen while I was teaching online, so that's the only saving grace for this. It's just a podcast, so it's fine. Uh, How widely is your podcast distributed? Uh, We'll we'll edit most of it. The video is distributed amongst the three of us. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's an audio medium. It's all good. So, Bernice... What yes, is darling. Alien? <laughs> Thank you, Bernice. What is Alien about for um, you? I would say that Alien, uh, we talk, uh, maybe I'm thinking about this because we did the Science of the Lambs a few years ago for Halloween, I believe. I would say that Alien, as well as being a superb horror science fiction film, is a workplace drama. 
um, a very realistic workplace drama, and it's a drama about women in the workplace at a time where the topic of women in the workplace was a particularly fraught one. And in a weird way, I would put alongside Science of the Lambs as a workplace drama, A Woman in a Man's World, or Nine to Five. Um, I'm not the first one to point this out, that um, this is an entire film franchise based around men not listening when a woman says to them, if you do X, Y will happen, and them going, no, 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 you're fine. So I think in, I think one of the things that's really enduring about, about this film in particular is that it's a film about, um, in a way, structural misogyny. Um, and for me, actually, the, the alien is scary, but the alien, there's nothing personal about the alien. It is xenomorph. It's just, it's just a creature of pure primal instinct. But it's the company and the abuses of the company. And in particular, it's about, uh, for me, the, the most shocking scene, I'm sure we'll talk about it, for me, and I think maybe for a lot of other, maybe particularly female viewers as well, is um, the scene where Ripley is attacked by Ash. Um, and, uh, you know, I won't get into a lot of details in it. And I'm sure it'll probably come up later. But um, I think it really underlines that this is, um, in its own way, an intensely feminist film in a very interesting way. So that's, I mean, there's a lot of other things you could say about the films about as well. But for me, I think that's sort of the main take home um, about Alien, you know. If a woman tells you in a position of authority has a very good point to make, listen to that woman. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it, it is a movie about how people have had enough of experts and they'll be fine um, is really at its core. But um, like to, to bring it back to, to what you said there about like the, the misogyny of it and kind of the, the feminist subtext of the movie, like it's notable that the script was originally written so that it all the roles were gender neutral. They could be played by men or women, or at least that was Bannon's original plan. And I believe it was Alan Ladd Jr., the head of 20th Century Fox, who actually said to Ridley Scott, actually make uh, Ripley, make the survivor a woman. And like, again, this is something where I, I'm sure you'll correct me if, if I'm wrong, because I, I probably am. But like at this stage, like we talked uh, a little bit like, when we talked about Black Christmas, about how the original Black Christmas is one of the movies that codified the American slasher movie. Um, and we talked about how like, you know, we talked about this being paired with Halloween, which was released in 1978. Um, and even if you go back to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that's still 1973 and it's still an outlier. The idea of the final girl was not something that was like completely codified by 1979. It was not, I think, something that like audiences were expected to know going into a movie. And so Ripley's survival at the end of this movie was a twist on audiences because she was not... She was, first of all, uh, Sigourney Weaver was credited as the second lead behind Tom Skerritt because he was the bigger name. Uh, Ripley was also not the commanding officer of the mission. And so the fact that Ripley survives uh, and is played by a woman was seen as being subversive within the genre as it existed in 1979. And because this is 2021 and because everything is depressing and because time is a flat circle, um, I actually managed to do some research on this and bring up some reviews from the time at which the movie was released. Because we're very used to, at this day and age, uh, the internet getting very upset when women do anything in genre cinema and insisting that they're just there to pander and they're just there to appeal to, to certain audiences that need to be satisfied and how they aren't real characters. So I went back and I looked at... But even 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 Ripley, believe it or not, had had that uh, treatment. Yes, that that is exactly what I'm setting up. Well played, Andrew, I appreciate it. Sorry. But yeah, like it's one of the things that you have like with that modern movement is when you call them on and go, um, guys, are you... 
Are you just uncomfortable with the fact it's a it's a female lead? They're like, no, no, no. We're not sexist. Ripley, Ripley's cool. We like Ripley. Ripley's always been cool. And you're like, no, Ripley's Ripley gets a pass because you were kids when you saw that movie. Um, you look at like reviews from 1979, the New York Daily News saying some women may be impressed that actress Sigourney Weaver emerges as the, and it's in quotes, hero of the ordeal. And the fact the computer even though dispassionate and calculating, is dubbed Mother and has a female voice. Variety's review also complained that the movie was adequate, except that Ripley had an unfortunate tendency to use 20, 20th century swear words that were very distracting in the context of the movie. Um, so I find it interesting that you, like, even in the context of discussing, um, like, Alien in She's 1979. She's supposed to be saying smeg. <laughs> um, but you, ha- you have this kind of context going on there as well. But yeah, no, it is, it's... Like, the fact that Ripley survives, although obviously Sigourney Weaver is inseparable from the Alien franchise going forward, um, the fact that she survives still feels subversive because she's not the credited lead, she's not the commander of the mission, and it kind of plays into that theme Bernice mentioned of it being a movie about what happens when you don't listen to women. And we're going to talk about the Xenomorph in a moment, but yeah, to come back to the Ash stuff, like, there's a really good moment, like, the, the attack sequence with Ash we'll come to in a second but even before that ash is the person who breaks the chain of command and lets them on board ash is the one who ignores ripley and lets them on board and there's a wonderful sequence later on where like they're talking about the alien and ripley actually like takes ash aside and says when dallas and kane are off the ship i'm the senior officer and he goes oh yeah i forgot and that feels like a moment that perhaps resonates uh, somewhat where you have this idea of a man who's just like, oh yeah, no, I, I totally forgot that you are technically in charge. I was just doing what I was doing. Of course he no, hasn't um, forgot at all. No, no, he absolutely has not forgotten at all. Um, and you have obviously then the attack sequence where, and again, people talk about the sexual violence in Alien and they talk about the Xenomorph and they talk about Geiger's creation and we'll, we'll come back in a second. But the violence between Ash and Ripley is, like, explicitly sexualized. Like, right down to the fact that he erupts in, like, spasms of white liquid. Um, But, like, things where he forces her into the bunk, he rolls up a pornographic magazine. And by the way, like, in high definition, you can see the, like, I presume that's Brett's bunk, possibly. But you have, like, the pictures on the wall and they're, like, naked women and presumably, like, daughters like schoolgirls, um like actual children it's very disconcerting but he rolls up a, a pornography magazine and literally tries to ram it down her throat it's incredibly graphic and incredibly um like explicit in terms of it's kind of like he wasn't programmed to kill people as well because that's not the way you do that yeah it's more welcome it's more to a... andrew's andrew's periodic <laughs> section on the 250 called inappropriate choking where no, andrew rates no. the choking performance of characters like anton Chigurh from a no country for old men and ash from the alien franchise um no it's it, uh, sorry it it's um it's more to be kind of like symbolic as a, as a kind of like a yes. violation of a woman rather than kind of um for us to think that she's going to die from having a a um a, a magazine, a rolled up magazine. Into yeah. Her, uh, yeah. Well, he's he's incredibly condescending to her the entire time, and I don't <clears> think he's as condescending to the men, which is very, which is a very, very clever thing to put in there. And I think you only kind of pick up on it the more times you watch it because it, you know, it's subtle. It's not like he's saying, "Oh, shut up," <laughs> you know what I mean? But 
yeah, it, he definitely, definitely doesn't respect her authority in any way. But I mean, when it comes to Ripley and kind of the, the feminine side of things, for me, one of the most powerful scenes is when she finds out what's really going on and she just breaks down in tears and then just has to pull herself together again. Because as you say about, you know, the establishment of the final girl, it's not clear that she's the final girl at all. It's not clear in, you know, the the way that it's billed because obviously she doesn't get top billing. But it's not clear in the opening moments. It's not even clear when things start to go to hell. She has to fight very, very hard. and She fights right up until the final moment to survive. You know what I mean? It's not just, oh, because she's the woman. Well, you know, obviously it's going to be her. So I think that's very powerful as well, that she is the strongest among them as well. She's the most competent one on that whole ship. She's the most competent. That's why she survives. And I think that's a quality that actually isn't all that often depicted on film as ultimately as a positive. For much of this film, it's used against her, her very competence. But that's what makes her the sole survivor. She's exceptionally confident. She's right from the outset. Um, And, you know, that's why she she gets to be in all the other films and everyone else is dead. Um, You mentioned there, like, the idea that Ash isn't, like, doesn't treat his male colleagues the same way. There's a small moment when they're, like, doing the breakfast thing where the character played by Yafa Koto comes over and he's like, you're in my seat. And Ash immediately just moves and defends him. Yes, he does. Um, which is not how he reacts around Ripley at all, which is kind of interesting. And and to Bernice's point, you have the moment, like even when, and again, sorry, it's all that we're focusing on Ash, but I find like Ash is fascinating as a, as a concept because he's, he's an incel basically um, is what he is. And like, I like that, you know, whatever problems Prometheus and Covenant have like as movies, as they go on, I do like that Ridley Scott kind of doubles down on that with the Android played by Michael Fassbender, where you, you kind of get that misogyny, like very explicitly kind of woven into the text of the film. But like when, when Ripley takes her concerns about Ash to Dallas, you get that standard horror movie thing of, no, don't worry about it. It's why are you asking these questions? What's, you know, I, I, I know what I'm doing. Don't, don't get in my business. Why are you, why are you pressing me on this? Which is again, very dismissive. Um, and again, as, as we point out, if anybody had listened to, to her, we kind of be in a very, the movie would be a lot shorter. (laughs) There's this idea that kind of, um, that sort of approach is somehow kind of, um, uh, uh, rational and all for the best. Like that, uh, that, uh, of, of, of just looking for kind of, um, you know, more and more money and more and more kind of like technological advancement. Um, which is the, 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 I guess the, the kind of perspective of home and, and think, not thinking about the kind of risks involved and, and, and the, um, um, all of the harm, um, that, the, the, that this does to people, I guess, is, he's, is, is very much kind of, um, um, what does he say? It is un, unclouded by conscience. As if, um, as if conscience is, um, is something that kind of inhibits people from making good or decisions. holds them back. Yeah, again, this idea of pseudo rationalism. Yeah. Andrew, can I ask you? Do you do you think? Sorry for interrupting, Darren, but do you think that no. uh, if Ash were about to date, would he be working for Facebook in a high level capacity? <laughs> I think so. I I think he he'd be defending. Um, they're, they're yeah, Instagram's grand. We're on it. Yeah, it's, it's purely, we can't control what people are doing. It's 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 grand. It's, when yeah. this comes out, I wonder how much more we'll know about kind of like Facebook and that. There is some strange things happening in the last week about uh, um, 
just in in terms of like them being down and that sort of thing uh anyway that's it, it, dating the podcast a bit um, but no, no, I, I think there is something in there in that portrayal of Ash as like this robotic, rational man and the idea of those traits being stereotypically masculine. Because, I mean, we do want to get into the Veronica, like we did promise we would spend 20 minutes on the Veronica Cartwright celebration. <laughs> I think I think there's something interesting in Lambert as the other female character in the movie. Um, and again, it, it's worth noting that in Aliens, it's revealed that Lambert is transgender. Um, I believe, uh, in a small side detail, which also adds layers of complexity to this as well. But I think it's interesting that... In you, Aliens? In Aliens, yeah. There's a thing on the screen. If you read the screen while it's it's up very briefly, it's revealed that she was born uh, male. Okay. Um, but yes, so... But like throughout the film, you have this contrast between Ripley and Lambert as the two women on the team. And Lambert is consistently portrayed as uh, portrayed as highly emotional, highly volatile in the director's cut there's a sequence where she slaps ripley and and kind of insults her for refusing to let them on board the ship she's the one who really goes to pieces when the alien starts tearing through mm. and you have kind of ripley Com- complete wetbag yeah and sorry I, I... and understandably like you know she did it, it, it's it's incredible how um kind of together uh ripley is and how she's able to kind of like and that the um that's what I wanted to throw throughout there is is the question of like does Ripley survive in some respects because she kind of removes herself from the stereotypical performance of gender in that she presents herself as very rational, very emotionally removed. She doesn't conform to the expectations of gender. She isn't as much as a damsel as um, kind of the character of Lambert is. She isn't accommodating like women in the workplace are expected to be. And is that part of why she survives? And then at the end, you have her kind of stripping down to her underwear. And that's when the alien really starts to menace her. Is there something there? Is the film kind of making a point about performance of gender? For, perhaps, so, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll let other people speak better about this. But it, it, it's it's interesting, the kind of stereotype, because everybody has um, a mother. And generally, they're the, the people who get things done, you know? That 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 I I I kind of um now now that I'm technically an adult I just can't imagine that there 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 was no time where my mother was like oh sorry I, I, like um there's no dinner or uh, like the you know the 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 idea kind of even even when 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 gender roles were more kind of like traditional I I I feel like there was never any. Or at least there shouldn't have been, um, and I feel the 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 way stereotypes are kind of made is 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 so strange because I feel like it's always been very apparent how capable women are. Um, it's 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 and 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 that Ripley is a kind of like an embodiment of that. You know, of of, of and of 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 the kind of sense of the matriarch. I, I think yes. the problem is that women that don't get sense. women don't get credit for that. Women are just expected to do the work yeah. and get on with it and shut up. So when you're saying, "Oh well, we've always known women are capable," you're taking that for granted. Mm. You know what I mean? Like the idea of Ripley being a masculine character is kind of betraying that <laughs> that sense. Like she's she's a masculine character because she's so capable, because she's so competent, because she's so strong. But as a female viewer, you watch it and you're like, yeah, that's just a woman. 
That's just exactly. a woman. That's just yeah. a woman in work. Does it? Because that's just that, that's like, I, it, it could be because they come from like a, a, a line of like, um, like obviously I love both my parents, but I always felt like my mother was a like a very strong kind of personality and um, uh, very in charge. And and my father's mother and my mother's mother, they were they were all kind of like leaders, you know. Um, and this kind of like. I don't know. It, it, but, I, I, I don't relate to this idea of like it, okay. it being a stereotype, I guess. Okay, it's but, never but really... in, in the movie, you have this like presentation of Ripley as being mm. matter of fact and being businesslike. And you have people like Parker responding to that by just being terrible to her, by acting as if she's not being reasonable. By, which is, again, that, that stereotype, the, the, the idea that women are expected to be uh, agreeable. In, in all sorts of social environments. I, I think too, I mean, I, I said at the, at the top of the, the podcast there that um, I really enjoy aliens, but one of the things I, I enjoy less about aliens is that, I mean, and I love the relationship between Newt and Ripley, but I think it's it's actually in a way such a conventional, cliched thing to do, which is, ah, she had a child all along and now she's got a substitute child that she will protect and it becomes a battle between two matriarchs. They're both queens. You know, I love the film, but it's so it, in a way, it's such a predictable kind of arc. And I love, the, <clears throat> I love the fact that we don't know anything about anybody here. We don't, we know, we know. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, you know, Rip, Ripley has no backstory. Nobody has a backstory. It doesn't matter. It's just about the here and the now and the situation that they're in and how they behave under pressure. Which I think, uh, you know. So I mean, I think the contrast. I like one of the things I like about the film is there's two women in the film, but like they're not buddied up together. They're not best friends. <clears throat> they're not. They're yeah. not. They're not necessarily having catfights a la Man of Hand the Fate style. You know, but it's it's clear that they don't necessarily get along either. They have differing relationships with the men. It's um, Lambert seems to perhaps maybe as a protective mechanism or whatever is maybe more tends to more ally herself with the, the you know with sort of with the, the men on the ship perhaps. But she's more she seems to be more part of a clique in a way that Ripley is is not perhaps because of her more elevated command position. Um, and I love the fact that like the two women in this film, by the end of this film, it reminded me actually of Dawn of the Dead, um, where by the end of the film, it's one woman and a Jamaican guy and an Irish guy are the ones that are left behind. And it, if you think about the end of this film, it's Yafit Koto's character, whose name I've forgotten. I apologize. Parker again? Parker, sorry. Uh, and Lambert. It's, it's two women and two women and the yeah. black guy are the ones that are left behind. I mean, that's really like that's revolutionary in itself. In 1979, they're the survivors. All the white guys are dead. Um, these are the, and of course, only Ripley will ultimately survive. But there's something tremendously interesting about that dynamic. And uh, I, as I say, I like the fact that her and Lambert aren't, you know, like having coy conversations about, oh, we're the only women on this ship. It's totally irrelevant. The professionals are there to do a job. I mean, it's often described as what truck drivers in space. That's what they are. It's a resolutely unglamorous job. Like they find an alien spaceship and they're kind of like, eh, you know, nobody's... What's my bonus situation? Eh, How does this know, affect my payout? Yeah, yeah, fair enough. It, it grounds it so much that, you know, when you get to the more, uh, I suppose, outlandish element, it, it totally works because it's absolutely grounded in a reality. It could be any workplace, really. I mean, maybe not a, in an office so much, but um, it, it helps that it's in space, I suppose, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Me and my friend Bob found this really this really unusual egg in the staff room one time. Well, it, and we just decided it's where that. you find kind of those big air vents, I guess. 
You know, you don't have them in houses. You've got them in offices. So that's the thing where, like, there's going to be, like, an alien, a xenomorph, like, yeah, crawling the, around. The, the proto-diehard of it all. Um, but I, no, I, I want to play Darren's role this week and say, like, forgetting um, character name for Parker. That's, that's Cotto Hurt. Speaking of Hurt, what about John Hurt? Um, sorry. <laughs> and I... I'm taking. I'm. I'm stealing your thing, Darren, of doing terrible puns. Uh, um, and awkward segues. But yes, yeah. let's talk about. What, what, John why don't we? Uh, um, why? 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 Oh, sorry. But actually, like, hold on. Before before we pass over, like, we, we were talking about Lambert, and I think like Bernice wanted to single out uh, Veronica Cartwright yes. um, as a performer. So. Yeah, I, I just say very briefly. I, I think it's in part because um, I've just self promotional art. I've just finished a book that has a chapter devoted to the 1978 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers by Philip Kaufman. And so uh, so uh, Cartwright, who was in two absolutely astonishing science fiction horror films, one in 78, this in 79, like she was in a hell of a role, as well as like stuff like The Witches of Eastwick in the 80s, where she's also great in. And she was also in Lost in Space as a child, so she was a very well-known... No, no. Or was that her sister? Was that not her sister? That, was, that was her sister. Like she was in The Birds. Oh, she was she in was The Birds, t- of course, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, but I mean, she's got an incredible like resume. But oh, was she the one who was uh, who had like her ears covered? It's her birthday party that's attacked by the birds, I believe. Um, she's got the oldest older brother, Rob Taylor. He's about forty years older than her. You're going. What what age was Jessica? Uh, what do you call her? Uh, those parents have a very active life, you know. I mean, look, it's 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 good to know that at their age, they're still. You know, I could believe she was the girl's there. mother, but Rob Taylor is about five years younger. Than, but sorry, uh, what I will say about Cartwright is um, she's tremendous in both films, and she's like a stealth MVP in in Body Snatchers yeah. because there's one other woman in that film as well. It's Brooke Adams. She gives a wonderful, very warm performance, and she's the heroine. But as the film goes on, she sort of fades. She gets more and more passive and more and more depressed, and by the end. The final survivor in that film is the character played by Veronica Cartwright. And she's also the only one who susses out about the alien. She says, uh, why do we always expect them to come in metal ships? She's the one who cops on before anybody else what is actually happening. But And then she goes into Alien. And I think, I mean, people who are very familiar with the backstory of the film and know this already, but... And, and I, I had always thought this was kind of an urban legend. And then I was looking it up. And apparently it is true that uh, Cartwright thought for quite some time up until very shortly before the film was being made that she had the Ripley part. She'd, she'd auditioned for it three times. Yeah. And it turns out the Weaver was fairly convinced that she was playing Lambert. And there seems to have been a certain amount of understandable. I mean, what a gift of a part. Um, when she didn't play Ripley, she was a bit hacked off, perhaps, as anyone would be. Like, what a professional opportunity. But I think... It, it's it's a performance that's I think is really good in itself because there's moments where Lambert she does hysteria better than anybody else like but Veronica Cartwright's yeah. control or, or hysteria and her reaction to the chest burster is um, a busting moment which apparently I've, I've read that that was she wasn't being told quite what was happening that, but she does that reaction so well that she really she sells it that she sells it and even towards the end of the film she's a character who comes up with quite sensible suggestions like let's get the hell off this ship and get out of here and eventually Ripley comes down to that and realizes yeah um but and Ripley's the survivor but I think Lambert's an interesting character and I mean, uh, Darren, I'm sure you noticed, but of course, Cartwright had a quite an important role then in the X-Files, didn't she as well? So just a, a three-time Emmy nominee, like in the 90s, in the, like in the golden age of her career, um, twice nominated for the X-Files, once nominated for Eeyore. I didn't know um, she was nominated just... for the X-Files. That's brilliant. 
Yeah. Um, well, again, she was kind of, that's the elder stateswoman kind of role where she had this kind of role where she came in. And again, because it's alien, she has that association. But like throughout her career, she became like she's still working. She's still popping up in stuff every now and again. She's like Ed Asner up until kind of Ed Asner passed, where I'd be like watching the Karate Kid TV show. And there's Ed Asner for some reason. I was just going to say, if they were ever to make a female horror film version of The Expandables, you'd have Barbara Crampton, Veronica Cartwright. You'd have, of course, of Jimmy Lee Curtis. Jimmy Curtis. Um, yeah. You'd have Dee Wallace Stone. There's somebody I'm probably forgetting here. Probably Angela Bassett would be incredible in there as well. Yeah, um, you sure know, Jessica Lange, maybe. But uh, you don't want to make it too Ryan Murphy. But, you know, <laughs> she'd be in the mix because she would deserve to be in the mix because she's such an important figure, actually. She is. And like uh, she, she was in the second Candyman as well, I think, like during the 90s and all this sort of stuff. Um, like, again, one of those actors who you always see and you're always kind of happy to see, which is, is good yeah. as well. If you want someone um, to freak out um, on screen, get Veronica Cartwright. Nobody's better at it. No, it's funny you should mention Candyman because she has kind of a Virginia Madsen kind of quality to her, especially in this, where she does, as you say, when she's hysterical. Um, and because I think Andrew wanted to steer the conversation towards John Hurt and because Bernice kind of gave us the segue there, um, that sequence that they shot with the chestburster, obviously the actors all kind of knew it was coming and stuff because it's in the script. You've read the script um, and the script was a, a very successful script that had been passed around. Nobody knew what it was going to look like. Nobody knew what the prop looked like. And as Ridley Scott said, like he was going to be splattering the set with blood. So he was only going to get one take. So he had like cameras placed around. So a lot of the reaction that you get from the um, actors to this is like, oh, my God, it's actually happening now. And wait, what's happening now? Um, which which really kind of captures the, the kind of reality of the scene. And I think Kubrick, Stanley Kubrick, apparently like talked to Scott afterwards and was like, I couldn't figure out how you how you did that scene, because like the bit where he's eating and then it comes out of him almost in a single take. And it's like, I've gone through frame by frame. There's no cut there. And Scott's like, yeah, it was just, it was under the table. That's, that's, that's how we did it. Just very basic kind of trickery. But yeah, Andrew, you want to talk about John Hurt, I think. No, no, I was just making stupid puns. Um, <laughs> I, I, I thought Dallas could have just scared it away. Yeah, <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> we'll look forward to some Xeno more of those. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, uh. All right. Do, but it, like, okay. Dean Stanton could have hurried um, away. When we, when, like we talk, we talk about. Okay, well, while we're talking about hurt, one of the things I find interesting about this is the pacing of Alien, particularly mm. when you watch it today, right? Because it, it's under two hours. It's like an hour fifty-six, an hour fifty-five, depending on which version you watch. The first forty-five minutes of the first, it's five or six minutes before a human being appears on screen mm. because the camera just takes you through the physical space. And it's a, it's a wonderful sequence. Like I love the breeze, like the air, as the air is moving through, you see like things blowing and kind of closing. It's a very haunted house in space. And then it's like seven minutes before a character says anything that you can audibly hear. And then it's 45 minutes, I think up until the point where you end up with like the face hugger on Kane and you have literally only an hour of the movie left by the time the chestburster has actually emerged. So you spend over half, or roughly half the movie, like just getting to the point where the title character appears. By the way, I love the German title of this movie is Alien, the Eighth Passenger, which I kind of love. But like, I love how the movie takes its time situating you in its world and just letting these things, because you spend a lot of time like arguing about whether or not you're going to go to the planet 
You spend a lot of time arguing over like shares of profit about whether you're going to go to the planet. You spend a lot of time looking at how gorgeous these sets are before anything actually happens. And I like that that mood and ambience and the fact that so much of the film is mood, if that makes sense. Well, it's wise, yeah. I think, to, to, to do it that way. It feels like they're kind of winding it up um, to sort of like slingshot into the, into the second half of the, of, 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 of the movie. It's, it, it's, it's a very good understanding of tension, it feels. Yeah, I'm trying to think, like, was it Slate described it as like some European art house film, all build up and all prologue? Huh. I find that kind of, I find that. What? Kind of, <laughs> um, I was a compliment. It was a compliment, I think, but it was a bit reductive. But I, I think it actually does. Like the scariest movie in history is actually a bit shy. Um, like when you no, compare it, it to like what follows. It's not, it's, it's an action movie if it starts like, like that. It's a. It feels like I. I. I think in a horror movie, you have to, like I'm. an obviously I'm no expert, but you need a bit of suspense, right? And that's what the kind of slow um, uh, beginning is for. Or am I wrong? But I. I think like what's interesting, and I think maybe this is a difference between it and something like say, not the first Halloween, but like a lot of the other slasher movies that follow. Is that like a lot of the early entries in these franchises have that slow beginning and slow start? Like I'm rewatching, mm. like I rewatched Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and it takes forever for Leatherface to show up. And when he does, he literally just wanders through a door and bops somebody on the head and then disappears again. Um, but you look at things like Halloween, where you have like the sequences, like set during the day of Halloween itself, are half the movie before you get to the night knife and anything night and a- anything actually starts happening. Um, like is that a, is that like something that at, at the risk of using a phrase that I think Bernice like prohibited early in the podcast, is that something that elevates the those earlier like horror installments over what followed that understanding of kind of tension and suspense and building? Well, it shows it shows a confidence in the material as well. That's what these later installments don't seem to understand. They're so eager to get to like Michael Myers or Jason or Freddie or whoever that they don't under, they don't understand that yeah that is the payoff. But you have to establish some sense of setting who these people are, what they're doing. Like, uh. And what's brilliant about Alien as well is that it plays with your expectations over and over. You know, they get this distress signal. They got to follow it. They go to the planet. You think, oh, are they going to get stranded there? You know what I mean? Is the alien going to get on the ship while they're there and they won't realize? And so much of it, it is self-contained and takes place just on that ship because obviously, you know, they had confidence in the fact that this was a strong enough story that you would wait for it to get where it was going. And it doesn't, to its great credit as well, even though it does, you know, get more action packed in the end, it doesn't sort of pack it all into the last 20 minutes, which a lot of modern horror does as well. So you do kind of wait and wait and wait and wait. And then it's like just 20 minutes of madness. But Alien, yeah, it, it does seem to really, really understand that if you wait and you let it get under your skin, it really, the impact is much, much more severe. Because those scares when they come, I mean, they really hit you full in the face. Because you're so comfortable in that setting and you're comfortable with these people. And, and they really take the time as well, sorry, to establish, uh, you know, you, you never quite have a firm handle on what kind of creature you're dealing with. Like, you know, from the title of the film, there's, there's probably going to be an alien. So you get into the alien spaceship, but then you have a dead alien and it's a giant and its chest is burst open and you're going, what the hell is this thing? Because, you know, you haven't yep. seen Prometheus yet. You're not living in the future. 
Um, and then, and then you know, they, they go, they go, you know, hulking, and they find. Sorry, Seth, are my words. Uh, they go digging, and they find the the egg. No, and I understand hulking. Yeah, sorry, I, I never quite sure if it's a southern word or if it's like a I don't know. But you know, they're they're hulking to find the the alien in the eggs. You're going, oh, Great it's a thing. And then it it is. It's a very it's a very useful word. Bin hooking is a particular genre of you know looking in the bin for something you've dropped in by accident. Um, but anyway, uh, it could be an alien, perhaps. So it it you you don't you think you've just when you think you've got a handle on what it is, you know, when it bursts out of his chest, it looks you know it looks it's attached to his face. It looks kind of like you know famously it looks like man of sand of fate. It's like a, a weird hand, like almost like a weird kind of like a like a like a a, a stingray or something like that. So you're going right. Then they do the little autopsy on it, which is actually fantastically realistic. Like they, it looks like real organs that they're poking at inside it. So you've got a level of realism there and you think, okay, I know what this is. It's some sort of weird alien parasite and it looks like an upside down hand. Then you've got the chest burster and the little thing jumps out of it, doesn't do the tap dance. And you're going, what the hell is this? That looks nothing like the egg and it looks nothing like... And then you get to the end of the film and, you know, famously, it has obviously evolved in a vaguely humanoid fashion. And it's another kind of seeming type of creature, but all still the same creature. And I think that's part of the genius of the film is you don't just go, well, there's a big scary thing with big teeth that was on that ship and it's chasing us now. You spend the whole film going, what the hell is actually going on here? Just like the characters in the film, you know? And I mean, like, it's notable that, like, for it, and again, this is one of the things where it's almost impossible to approach Alien in the way that, like, people did in 1979, because we now have words for all of those things. We call them facehuggers, we call them chestbursters, we call them xenomorphs. Going in in 1979, and I think Ridley Scott said, like, one of the challenges was that it's not one monster movie, it's four monster movies. Like, you, you can't just count on one good monster design, you need four, like, compelling monster designs in order to make this work. And how the film trusts you to figure it out as you go along. I mean, like, famously, one of the big changes in the director's cut is that, like, they do a scene where it's revealed that, like, Dallas was being turned into an egg. Uh, Dallas and Brett were being turned into eggs and that was the life cycle but I think that like when you get to aliens I think and again this is something I think Joey made the observation I again I quite like some of the alien sequels I think Bernice made it the same point about Prometheus as well where you get to like over explaining it and kind of like over like it becomes knowable and it becomes something that like people can have continuity arguments about you I think what's really effective about alien is that it it gives you enough that you can figure out the basics of it, like follow A, B, C, D, without like having somebody throw words like facehugger, chestburster, uh, or xenomorph at you. Um, and I think like that manages to tread that line of being so alien in, in the adjective sense of the word, so that it's scary, while also making sense, which is is also kind of important with a concept like this. I, I think it's a remarkable uh, piece. It's of interesting. Yeah, what you're saying about how different they are, because like the the um, chestbursters are um, so picky about what they eat, like they only eat like little bits of um, liver and leave everything else behind. It's a complete waste. And um, yeah, nobody eats then, any of the food of that, that after that sequence. Yeah, no. but then like, later on, the xenomorph eats like everything. It's it's well, like it's all, all of the buffalo. Yeah. yeah. Got to put on body mass. He's got to grow. Like, where does the body so. mass for the, that? Like, for that <laughs> real gains? Person? Yeah, is real it, quick gains as well. We don't. We don't see. We don't see the xenomorph like lifting. <laughs> uh, uh, when it when it kind of grows between the chestburster and the actual monster itself. But like, yeah, looking at itself in the mirror. <laughs> let, 
Let's talk about the actual creature itself, famously designed by H.R. Geiger, the kind of surrealist Swiss painter. And I think that, like Scott said, that he took it from like his 1976 painting at Necronom. Um, and apparently the alien, like the alien that Geiger designed was literally built from animal bones, condoms and a real human skull. I'm not sure that was the one that they used on set. I think that was just a proof of concept. Um, yeah. There, there, there is like a feeling like um, when you find a shedded skin, like it, it feels like it, it's kind of like alluding to a used condom. Or was that just me? What? No, it's more like a snake. Oh, I know. I know, I know, I know, I know that it's meant to look like a snake, but I, I've, 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 <laughs> I've, I've, why would you think of a used condom? It's a snake shedding its skin. <laughs> because because the xenomorph is, is an inherently kind of um, sexual idea of being like a like a penis and a vagina at the same time. Yeah, but it's yeah, but when it's small, it's small. Like it's small when it sheds. You don't see like a giant xenomorph skin. But it's small and very phallic, though. Like the chest burster is like a mm. penis that. Penetrate. It is like a little penis with a mouth. It is like a little penis with jaws on it. Like, you know, again, like the the design of this is not subtle. It's a it's a penis head with a little mouth that has another little penis inside it and just like penetrates. (laughs) It's it's like again, H.R. Geiger, not a subtle artist when it comes to this. But like this was all, I think, in O'Bannon's original pitch. I think O'Bannon talked about how like what he wanted to do with Alien was he wanted to make, I believe the quote is, make all the men in the audience cross their legs. Um, oh, yeah. and feel uncomfortable by presenting the specter of sexual assault against men. Um, and like, I think, yeah. That, that's unwanted sexual... pregnancy. Yes. Um, yeah. And... and it's an oral rape, isn't it? Yeah, because but... of yeah. penetration yeah. as well. And as Andrew pointed out, the facehugger is both a, like a vagina, uh, but it's also a vagina that penetrates you. So it is it's a penis as well. So it is, yes, it is very, um, very, very layered with that sort of imagery as well, which I think is... You see that is, horrible x-ray and you see like... Ugh. Yeah, just going all the way down and laying eggs. And yeah, as, as kind of Bernice pointed out, like forced pregnancy and forced birth as well. Um, apparently based on the fact that O'Bannon had Crohn's disease and he would feel like his um, insides were ready to burst. And so he thought, hey, I can put that, I can use that in, in my script. No, I was just going to say that chest bur- burster, like it still looks so fantastic, that puppet. Like it's so just, good. it just looks brilliant. It's not as great when it's on the table and scurries away, I don't think. Yeah, it's a little, a little bit goofy. But at the same time, again, you'd much rather that than dodgy CG. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, the problem with that sequence for me is the one Bernice mentioned is I expected to wear a little top hat. And so, yes. Like, and, yeah. Once you've seen that, it, it's kind of um, a lot of a lot of tension is gone, except for the tension of waiting for it to dance. <laughs> it's that very relatable thing for anyone kind of who has a body. Like I think Darren and I have spoken about it. How how disgusting like we are. How it's all uh, like you machines know, made of meat. I think was your quote. Like the idea that human bodies are just like muscle and tendon and grizzle and. Yeah, but how, how you spoke about like this kind of like jelly like inside your eye that's like really kind of like vulnerable and then like fills up with blood if it gets poked and that, that there's like I like that you're putting this on of... me. Where you get <laughs> no, mental, no, like, uh, yeah. yeah, but the, all these kind of like fluids and humors and kind of like ev- everything kind of um, being so soft and and kind of yeah, and all the, the dead skin kind of shedding and sticking everywhere yeah. and like all all of the kind of like processes of of um, waste and excretion and all that sort of thing. It's all gross. Like the 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 way we are is disgusting. 
sorry. Um, and and like I, the, the, the like we get past it all the time, and we kind of like don't don't sort of like think about it, and and like I don't think about it, but kind of like I, from it it it's very relatable when when horror movies kind of are are these sort of body horrors. Sorry, Joey. What you were saying there, Andrew, is um, uh, there's a concept you know the abject in horror criticism that's really important. There's a French theorist called Julie Kristeva, and she talks exactly all about um, excretion, bodily fluids, you know, vomit, piss, blood. It's all. She, it was, it was, her ideas were picked up by a lot of horror theorists, like a woman called Barbara Creed, who actually wrote about Alien as well. And uh, so it was applied exactly, that kind of stuff was applied to particularly zombie films and films like Alien and that idea that really we, we, we are um, fundamentally kind of freaked out by our own bodies and by the, our own mortality <clears throat> and by, by what comes out of our bodies and what we expel from our bodies. And, uh, you know, the idea that we're all essentially... Um, you know, uh, cor- corpses in waiting as well. Um, so it's a, I'm, I'm very pearly uh, oversimplifying Chris David there, but um, it's actually, it's a really no. important idea within the genre, actually. Thank you. So the French agree with you is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, 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 you, you, you put it very well. So that, no, it, it's, 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 and, and it's good to kind of, uh, um, uh, have that thank you no no it's it's fantastic to have that kind of concept for it and yeah like the, the the idea of the alien as something that is unnatural and like perverts the natural order of things it is born of man it is a creature it's Cain's son i think is how ash describes it at one point and like the way in which it's presented as like again that blurring of gender and, and sexuality and boundaries in a way that makes the audience kind of uncomfortable um, which is, is kind of stunning and impressive. And I think actually one of the things I find really impressive about the movie is the way in which, and again, it, it's almost as if like we the alien isn't really the monster in Alien. I think Andrew kind of alluded to the idea that like society is and capitalism is and misogyny is and all this sort of stuff. But the way in which throughout the film, this creature that looks monstrous and again, to use the title of the movie, looks alien, looks like nothing organic or human or natural or anything grown in a place that has grass, um, manages to blend in perfectly with the environment of the Nostromo. It is very hard to spot the alien when it is lurking in the ship. Um, In the director's cut, um, there's a moment when Brett is, like, when he does that sequence where he washes his face, and that's in both versions, but he looks up and the alien is hanging there and he just doesn't see it. Yeah, he just doesn't see it because it looks like it's part of the ship. There's a moment at the climax where Ripley is just like touching something on a monitor and she realizes it's the alien's head and it grabs her. Its hand reaches out to grab her. Yes. Yes, it's so good. It's, it's so good. It's so amazing. It, but it's like it looks like one of those little canisters. That's like. it. Exactly. No, like, it's its head. Yeah. Yeah. I think as well, ah. the, the fact that she ends up in her underwear at the end, where like as a teenager, I kind of had a problem with it because I was like, eh, she's being sexualized. But I also think from uh, from the perspective of sexual assault, it's quite clever because she is so exposed and then she so quickly just covers herself back up again. Like it's really, again, it's just, it's threading that needle. It's very, very clever. Yeah. And like, the, but like the idea that you have, like that the world that man has built is like hostile to human beings as Andrew points out like the the movie repeatedly points out how close any of them are to death and the yep. vacuum and the void the moment where they ship Kane's body out and he just becomes trash floating beneath between the stars but like the idea that this world that we have built is ironically better suited for this monstrous demonic entity than it is for any of the human beings who have to like live and work in it yeah 
Because they've, they've finished leaching the earth of all its kind of um, materials and are now sending kind of like a refinery um, that is um, ta taking um, minerals from another planet and processing as they go so that when it gets to earth, they'll have all of this ore um, uh, to use. And then all, also like this killing machine. Um that that you can use for um what well, the they're they're I guess like it's developed in some of the later movies. When the the attempts to like monetize the monetize the uh, giant killing yeah, monster. It always goes poorly. <laughs> it does. Well again, that's that's and again here you have the idea that the company knew that the alien was out there because they replaced Ash. They replace that, like you have the moment with Dallas. It's actually cut from the director's cut, but the moment where they're having the argument, Dallas, like, "Oh no, I don't know anything about Ash. He was just assigned to us right before this mysterious assignment where we were sent to investigate this strange signal from this monstrous ship." And again, the idea that while, and again, it's it's hard to talk about Alien without talking about the sequels or the the universe or the, anything that comes with it. But the idea that the company that will be known as Wayland Utani um, is just completely uninterested in human lives what's that bit when when um ripley types into the computer and it responds with uh crew expendable yeah the idea that yeah that the human lives are completely inessential compared to getting a hold of this thing that presumably killed everything it came in contact with anyway but might have some material value for some reason somewhere or somehow which again is is incredibly uh, incredibly bleak it's the folly um, of man though isn't it like because we you know we just assume we can control this thing that we know nothing about and as you said it adapts to this environment much faster you know because there's no guarantee these people are even going to get home even at the end where she kind of goes to sleep and she's like oh i can finally relax i always thought it was quite a bleak ending because there's no real guarantee and then of course we find out in the sequel that like when she's put on trial and everything which is very cynical but probably very true to life it's you know it is just about the folly of man that we don't realize that this thing is actually much, much more advanced than we are. Yeah, I think my favourite single scene, non-alien related scene in the Aliens film is where she's before the tribunal in Aliens and uh, Weaver's there and she's just got this, she's got this very patrician quality anyway because she's up from a very patrician background in real life um, and she's kind of dripping the stain. She's talking to these idiotic executives and she's trying to explain what happened. They're just not getting it. They're just going on about the insurance money and all the money that was lost. And she says, I can't get it right, the intonation right, but she says, did IQs just drop sharply while I was away? And she's got absolute, like, you know, basically you, you idiots, you know, and of course, you know, it's a detail I like because it reminds me of the only good thing maybe about uh, Poltergeist 2 is the detail that the Freeling family are destitute because they went to their insurance company and said, we don't have a house because ghosts blew it up. And the company were like, well, you're not getting your insurance. That's not covered. So they're living in Arizona in like her mother's house and they've got no money and uh, they're totally destitute because the company was going, we don't insure for ghosts. So that's kind of what's happened to Ripley in um in I think like it was a Stephen King point out that yeah the the explosion of haunted house movies in the late seventies probably not coincidental that that inclined with like the collapse of the mortgage market um, where like I think and again sorry yeah, tangent, you called but, it the horror movie economic nightmare yeah. 
And like there's there's the thing about um the Amityville horror where like the entire Amityville like mythos was created by George Lutz because he couldn't afford to pay his mortgage and wanted to find a way out. So he literally invented a haunting, which I kind of like admire the good spot of. Um so he did do the poltergeist two thing of ghosts destroyed my house. Um sorry, I can't afford to pay. Um and apparently it worked just as well. We haven't actually talked that much about Ripley and about Sigourney Weaver here. She is outstanding. Um and the thing about that is Weaver, I think at this point was primary. she was 28 years old uh, from New York. I think her parents or her mother, at least, is English. Um, but she had very little on stage or on, sorry, very little on screen experience. Appar- was Kramer versus Kramer before this? That was such a brief kind of, it's so strange that it's, that it's uh, Sigourney Weaver in it, isn't it? That the that she just kind of like appears across the street and is like is isn't she like Dustin Hoffman's kind of new girlfriend? Is she? Uh, I'm just checking here and I don't see her in the cast list. Um, oh but God! Just... What? Who am I but thinking it, of? She now? did go to drama it, college it, with with Meryl Streep and apparently Streep be. Streep got all the good parts and apparently I didn't know Streep was considered for this. Imagine Meryl Streep in Alien. That would be interesting. <laughs> That's a very different career path. Um, She'd probably do it well, I'd say. She'd be brilliant, I'm do sure. Do anything. Yeah. yeah. And I guess you could argue that, yeah, that there is this kind of overlap, at least in their late career, where you can imagine the two kind of crossing over. Like, I could imagine Sigourney Weaver in the Jonathan Demme um, versus the Manchurian Candidate in that role, for example. Yeah. Um, but, like, uh, so that was, but that was 1979. That was the Best Picture nominee. I just don't see her in the cast list. I'm not saying she isn't. Oh, I beg your pardon, mate. You, 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 you could be right. Um, I might be thinking of somebody she else. She has a very small role in Manhattan. Yes, yes, she does. Or is it Manhattan or Annie Hall? She has one of them. She's, she's Alan's a girlfriend at the very end of Manhattan. Uh, or somebody, she, she has a very small role in it. That would be the same time as well. That would be 1990. Uh, yeah, that would be 1979 as well. Which also stars Meryl Streep, actually, as well, coincidentally. Um, just bringing this whole universe together. Um, but yeah, like she was an off-Broadway actor. She apparently didn't have uh, much screen experience at the time. And apparently it was a cause of tension on set. And apparently like a lot of what you see on screen with like the character of, of kind of uh, Ripley uh, comes from apparently um, Scott. And again, this is one of those things that maybe doesn't speak too highly of Scott as a director. Apparently, Yafek Koto, um, who plays Parker, was like a skilled improviser. Um, he had done a lot of screen acting before. And apparently that was deeply frustrating for Weaver, who was much more used to the kind of like stage school where you learn your lines, you hit your marks and you do what you're supposed to in each take. There's a moment where she literally just shouts, shut up at him. And that's because she was getting really angry at him talking over her lines. Um, but apparently that was at the direction of Ridley Scott, who told Koto to just keep winding her up on set. Uh, just so we can get that tension uh, and kind of get that kind of mood there, which again, maybe not the best directorial practice. Um, we also worth noting that apparently on set, Yefa Koto and Harry Dean Stanton got on like a house on fire because they were both smoking copious amounts of weed with one another. Um, huh. Sigourney Weaver would apparently like she got a lift to the uh, set every morning uh, to Shepperton with Harry Dean Stanton. And she would have to insist that he roll down the window because she doesn't do well with the smell of marijuana, um, which I thought was a very lovely, lovely, charming story. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about with this movie? Anything we haven't discussed already in jumping out? So scenes, beats, themes, ideas. I haven't talked about the cat. Oh, Jonesy. Because, <laughs> I mean, you know, what's that screen, famous screenwriting book, Save the Cat? This is, yeah, I mean, yeah. this is, I haven't read it, but I resume Alien is the <laughs> film that invented the concept of you must save the cat because, you know. 
she says, uh, and there's also I noticed she's there's a bit where she's carrying the cat in his in the cat case. Yeah, and she throws it. She just like fax it through <laughs> the door, and the cat's in it. You can see the cat in it. Like, <laughs> We're <laughs> so just cat. mimicking an upside down cat there for the benefit of the listeners. That is a professional cat. Yeah. That is, yeah. I mean, like, that I mean, cat is committed. And we should note that, like, Ridley Scott's school of direction uh, with the cat was apparently no more nuanced than with his actors. When he oh, wanted no. to, when he wanted to get that, like, hissy, like, that sequence where the alien attacks Brett. Uh, which is a great sequence, and the cat kind of hisses and and kind of like freaks out. Um, he had a kennel, a little glass kennel with a sheet over it, and in it was a Rottweiler, and he would pull the sheet off and scare the cat, and that is how he got the reaction uh, that he did from the cat. Um, good old, good old Ridley Scott. We should also note that he apparently spent a solid two or three months before the film storyboarding uh, all of it. Um, like he storyboarded it with the artist. So he like pretty much again, we talked about this in the podcast before, like a comic book of the movie because he only had so much money. He needed to know exactly what each shot was going to look like and where the camera was going to be. So he could tell the special effects artist, look, I don't need the back of that to look good. Like, if if you could do it like efficiently and cheaply and make one side of it look good, as long as it's this side, it will work, um, which is is kind of remarkable as well. And again, like it just it looks gorgeous. Um, shout out to Scott as a, like he's a director. He's done a lot of com- uh, perfume commercials, done a lot of commercials in general. Um, he knows how to make a movie look good. You could argue like Ridley Scott's biggest problems are when movies can't be fixed by being made to look good. Um, but like I think Alien is a a beautiful film. It's one of those almost every frame a painting uh, kind of thing. And we we spoke a bit about the the um the ship and the alien itself kind of uh, resembling each other. And then we see the alien ship that looks like very very much kind of like um like a, a like a large body um of 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 bones. But you, in inside their ship you have these kind of hatches that that have these kind of like sphincters just kind of close it like an iris. Yeah, where he's yeah. going through the, the... Again, it's that mechanization. Like, because you're right, the space jockey... And again, it, the engineer in Prometheus, whatever, the mystery, that sort of stuff. I, lo- I love Prometheus, but Alien does not need a prequel. It doesn't need to be explained. It's lessened by being explained. Um, and I say that as somebody who loves a lot of Prometheus. But like... You, the se- you can kind of... You can kind of enjoy Prometheus as a film aside from... Yeah, Alien. Um, yeah. But like the, the sequence where like the the jockey is like woven into the chair. And again, it, it's that mm. theme you have of this idea. And again, uh, a fear of industrialization, um, the idea that the human body is just a mechanism of capitalism, that we're all just parts of these big unfeeling machines and that we are just spare parts, um, which is a very kind of primal horror movie sort of thing. The idea that we are just food for this monstrous alien creature um, that will burst out of us and use us as like a warm gestation pod. And then we explode um, in agony. Um, there were two little feminine design things that I noticed this time um, that I just want to point out. One, one is that she's not wearing a bra, so it must have been really uncomfortable to run around the whole time with no bra on. And the other thing, which is kind of a juxtaposition to that, is that she ties her hair up at one point, which I always love to see in a movie. They did it in Birds of Prey as well. Like they had... The, yeah, they throw, she throws a hair tie at one point. She asked yeah, her to, uh, to Black Canary, yeah. So I love seeing that in a movie because I feel like there must have been a woman on set at some point. It was like, no, she wouldn't just be running around with her hair in her face. But it's just, yeah, again, it just speaks to the fact that this is really kind of an, a subversive kind of feminist text. And it's even in, in ways like that that you wouldn't even really think about. 
All right then. All right then. So that that wraps up. In terms up, of the nonsense okay. that we do every week, we've covered most yes. of it. But it's like shouldn't smoke at a keyboard or at a dining room table. You shouldn't, shouldn't smoke, smoke in ever. a spaceship. Really? I imagine. Yeah. I am. Yeah. Why are they smoking? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that does that even? I mean, can you even do that in space? Can you smoke? I feel like the health and safety standards on this ship are remarkably low, given that Parker is able to turn on and off vents to make a point, like rhetorically. Um, like, I, I get the sense that health and safety are not a big deal. I actually love that they, they do the smoking. It's it's We talked, like, smoking is one of those things that, like, stands out in, like, classic American cinema. If it's a classic American film, somebody is smoking a cigarette for some reason or other. And I love that just everybody is puffing away for no reason whatsoever, presumably on a spaceship with a limited amount of oxygen. Um, and I love that the, the movie makes no real apology or explanation. No, and they don't get in trouble either. And the fact that they're all wearing their uniforms incorrectly, apart from the android, is a really, really nice touch as well. They're so casual. Like, they've been there a long time. They're just like, ah, oh, whatever. No one's watching us. It's grand. Um, and, yeah. like, like, and again, like, the, the wonderful opening sequence where the camera moves through the ship as well. Like, and it looks, it again, it just, you get a sense of it looking lived in. Like, it's not a pristine, fu- it's, it's something like Star Wars. Star Wars has the same thing, where it's like, oh, the future you were promised in the 50s of like rocket ships and colonies and like two, like 2001 A Space Odyssey where everything is white and nothing has like handprint smudges on it. That yeah. future is not going to happen. No, the future is just going to be Vietnam, but with 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 more like horror, like with it, with it, this time they're using aliens as well. Yeah. yeah. And a, a um, fog of nicotine in the air, you know, yellow walls. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, that post-Watergate solution of, well, you can't really trust anybody. Nobody has your best interests at heart, but it's okay because even if you knew what was going on, you wouldn't be able to fix it. So it's probably best not to worry too much about it. That very 70s kind of aesthetic that you have permeating the film. Um, all right, then. And we've talked about food waste because nobody eats any of that food <laughs> after the chest burster breaks out, I assume. That no, just doesn't, no, yeah, no, no, he gets fired off. In the they have loads of Tupperware so they could put it back in the Tupperware because they're, they're eating out of Tupperware anyway. That's true. They have storage vessels for it. I I do love that the most immaculate space on the ship that you see is the like six or seven mugs that they have that are hanging because those actually look like they've been washed, which I quite like. It's the only part of the ship that looks like somebody has cleaned it regularly. Um, All right, then. And Andrew's done the Robocop reference and we've done smoking. All right, then. So (laughs) what we normally do at the end of the podcast, we ask our guests. It is uh, purely strictly pro forma. Uh, what we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask our guests to recommend something for listeners, something you're enjoying at the moment. It could be something related to the movie, something unrelated to the movie, just something that you think listeners might enjoy, uh, even if it's particularly like horror-related uh, for the month that's in it. So to give uh, Joey and Bernice a chance to think about it, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. I, I think I mentioned it last year, but um, uh, and I haven't listened to it in a bit, but they have a season um, about Alien. It's uh, with Gorley and Rust. Um, it used to be um, in Voorhees we trust with Gorley and Rust, and I think it was um, in Kruger. I'm guessing in no in in Xenomorph. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, J- Jason Voorhees, but uh, I think for for Alien it was in Xenomorph we trust with Xenomorph and Rust. <laughs> he had to change his name um, each time, but yeah, it's it's two comedians talking about um, uh, horror movies, and I think. Um, Matt Gorley, who I think a lot of people might know at this point from the Conan Needs a Friend podcast, um, also does an impression of H.R. Giger that he doesn't like. Um, 
uh, super ego comedy bang bang, and comedy bang bang yeah as well and um and uh with gordian ross so to to check that out if you it, it's a it's a kind of a hang it's a it's like a, it, it, the podcasts or the that they do are generally um even longer than ours <laughs> so um and ours are excessively yeah, and unnecessarily yeah yeah exactly and in terms of like money and the effect it has on things i've been reading the oligarchs um by david e hoffman um about the uh, uh kind of move in in russia away from communism and it's an interesting book because in some ways it's kind of um it's close to some of these kind of oligarchs and almost at times uh sympathetic but also kind of like appreciating the the, the way that things are distorted um and 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 corrupted and it goes from like perestroika uh, true to kind of Yeltsin and that sort of thing. So it's it's like the likes of Boris Barasovsky and Khodorkovsky and all those lads. It's interesting. Um, and Joey, what would you recommend? What are you enjoying at the moment? Um, well, since it's Halloween season, I would say go watch a horror movie. Uh, Halloween Kills came out on the 15th, so that'll be out. Check your local listings, um, see if there's anything special going on. I know like anyone who's in Dublin, the Lighthouse is doing a whole um, load of horror movies all based around women which is pretty cool like revenge and raw and american psycho jennifer's body's in there as well i think isn't it as well it as is yes that. um if you're into that sort of thing um so <laughs> i'm not so um take that jennifer's body um, sorry i don't i'm not on that train sorry um was that, that was the diablo cody one wasn't it yeah karen, karen 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 kusama yeah. yeah yeah i love karen kusama as well i love like everything else that she's done um but anyway, yeah, I would just say do something spooky, do something Halloweeny. Um, there's lots of good stuff to do wherever you are. And Bernice, anything you'd recommend in terms of horror cinema? Um... Yeah, I mean, horathon wise, I'm exceptionally excited to go see a film called Antlers. I've been waiting uh, for since before the before times. Uh, it was meant to come out in April 2020, and it's about Wendigos, and I bloody love Wendigos. I wrote about Wendigos once. I'm, I was a bit obsessed with them in about 2014. Um, so I'm very curious to see it because the short story it's based on called The Quiet Boy by Nick Ancosta, who's responsible for the likes of Channel Zero, which is incredible. Great horror show. That's on Shudder, I think, isn't it? it, it I believe it's on Shudder now, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think if it's just in US Shudder, if, if it's on UK and Ireland Shudder, but it's definitely Shudder adjacent. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it looks really promising. And uh, on a spaceship note, I saw earlier this year a Swedish kind of existential science fiction. I would call it an existential horror film because it leaves you going, that was really good, but also, oh my God, I'm really depressed. It's a tremendous film. It's called Aniara. I'm probably mispronouncing it because I don't speak Swedish. Um, but it, in a nutshell, it's about uh, like a, a, a luxury uh, spaceship that's like almost like a cruise ship. Uh, taking uh, people, they're emigrating from Earth. Earth's been destroyed due to climate change, essentially. They're going to Mars. That's kind of just the backstory. And the ship breaks down and it ends up sort of lost in space to uh, return to the Cartwright family. And uh, and it's what happens. Um, they're not just lost in space temporarily. The film follow, goes through the weeks, the months, and perhaps even longer. And it's absolutely kind of astonishing. And uh, I, I loved it. Apparently, it's based on a poem from 1956. 
that Swedish people learned at school called Aniara. Um, so I don't want to say too much about it, but it has an ending that I think about really regularly and always makes me really, really sad and depressed, but in a good way. I love the idea that you've paired it like with the seventh seal, like it, like 1950s, like Swedish existential art. It's like, yep, yep, there was something in the atmosphere there. Yeah. yeah. It means a certain type of gloom that they do better than anybody else. And this is a good recent example. So Aniara is amazing um, and I really recommend it. I got it off, I think I got it on iTunes. So I rented it there. Uh, I'm sure it's available in other locations too. But if, if that's the kind of stuff that you think you'd be into, check it out. It's it's really, really good. Absolutely. We 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 love our depressing Scandinavian um, stuff on the 250. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ber- Bergman. Bergman has we, a kind of like we we are gonna yeah. have to co- like it's Ber- much better Bergman, than the depressing Russian stuff we have to cover. To be fair, exactly. Bergman has had quite a good reception from the two of us, considering we're idiots. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> um, uncultured swine. I think is the term that you mean to use. Um, but yes, um, in terms of recommendation for myself, I mentioned last week I've been like using lockdown to go through the major horror franchise and kind of fill some blind spots. The uh, Halloween franchise has a good three opening movies, which I would recommend. In particular, I think Season of the Witch, the third one, uh, is a masterpiece that like has been somewhat reclaimed by kind of cult aficionados, but is fantastic. If you ever want like Stonehenge, but supercomputers, that is kind of like the zone in which it operates. Um, I love the I love that um, the original Halloween, and I really like the uh, the Gordon Green one as well. Um, I also controversially quite liked the zombie ones, if only because I'd been so numbed by the movies leading into them that I think anything would have felt new or interesting. The Nightmare on Elm Street franchise um, I actually found surprisingly consistent um, as those kind of like classic eighties schlocker kind of movies go. Where I think the first three are really good. I think the next three are. Uh, there and i think the closing you, one is really good oh do do you like the really meta one i forget what yes. it is, is wes craven's yeah. new nightmare um yes it's is, is a masterpiece i would argue it's it's proto scream basically um and also the the candy man uh because like again you had nia DaCosta's version recently which i quite liked um and also the How original many times have we discussed candy man <laughs> have we said i think five <laughs> times but we're not I looking in a mirror own... so it's fine um, oh no! Yeah, well, I I am looking at myself. I've got a mirror behind me, <laughs> <laughs> um, on, on a Zoom screen. Yes, but I I rewatched the the franchise, um, and the first Candyman is is amazing. It's a massively underrated kind of like mainstream American. Philip Glass score as well. Yes, yes. So that should Andrew should watch it for that reason alone. I love that this, exactly. is, this is how Andrew approaches movies. Does it have a? He hasn't put me wrong so far. Like I've 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 enjoyed Kundun and um and mishima so far so okay, so Candyman might be the way to go all right then so joey so bernice uh where can we find you online watch up to so joey watch up to where can we find you what you doing uh i'm on twitter at joey ldg that's where you can find all my stuff all my ramblings and bad jokes <laughs> oh, perfect and Bernice, what's up to? Uh, I've literally just finished a book called California Gothic in Fiction and Film, which will hopefully be out sometime next year. Woo! Yay! 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 Good for you. Five people that will read that over the space of about 15 years are really chomping at the bit for it. But um, so, yes, that's what I have coming out. And uh, yeah, you'll find me on Twitter at Murph Gothic. So Murphy, but at the Y and Gothic. <laughs> okay. So that is California Gothic is the um, is the the book. Yeah, the California Gothic in fiction and film. So there's actually an awful lot on about horror film in there as well. So I got to write about some Amazing. some, some favourites like The Fog and uh, Ravenous and uh, The Invitation. Sort of another Karen Kusama yes. shout out, which is an incredible film. So um, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> 
Hopefully it'll get through peer review. <laughs> there is no place called California. This is... <laughs> it's all about the dreams. It's all about the dreams. Uh, <laughs> all right. So in terms of us, because uh, we gave you an episode in the middle of the week, because we did our episode, our this just in covering Dune uh, during the week, we're going to take next week off, but we'll be back the week after where the wonderful Jack Packard will be joining us for a discussion of Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro's to bring it back to Antlers, because I think he produces Antlers, if I remember correctly. Um, but we'll be talking about his only movie on the 250. That is Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, so we're looking forward to it. We'll see you in two weeks. Thank you so much, Joey. Thank you, Bernice. Thanks, Thank you guys. for taking the, the two weeks to record this as well. We really, <laughs> no, we really appreciate the, the unironic length of time you spent doing this. Bye. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.